Welcome back to the 2AM Book Review Club, where we stay up late talking about books or talk about books that made us stay up late. This week, I am very excited to announce that we will be kicking off our Reading Around the World mini-series. I participated in and completed the Storygraph Reads the World Challenge 2023, where I read 10 books for 10 different countries. And this month, I will be talking about all of these books. To kick things off, I will be doing an overview episode today where I tell you what books I read for this challenge. But for today's episode, I will only really be talking about seven of the books I read because over the course of this mini-series, I will be doing dedicated discussion episodes for the other three books. By the way, if you are also interested in participating in this challenge, which I do suggest, I thought it was a lot of fun, then I will have the link in the description. I will say it wasn't always easy to find books for each country, but unless you are also planning to do a mini-series on this challenge yourself, then there's really no need to do the whole thing, right? If you can only find books for like five of the countries, then you can just do that. There are no rules. Anyway, so the 10 countries for this year are Argentina, Colombia, Cuba, Italy, Nigeria, Norway, Pakistan, South Africa, Syria, and Trinidad and Tobago. The countries I'll be talking about today are Argentina, Colombia, Norway, Pakistan, South Africa, Syria, and Trinidad and Tobago. The other three countries, Cuba, Italy, and Nigeria, will be the focus of future episodes in this mini-series, so I won't be talking about those countries and their books today. Now let's move on to the books that I will be talking about today, starting with the book that I read for prompt number one, Argentina. For Argentina, the book that I read was Fever Dream by Samantha Schweblin. This is a difficult book to talk about and an even more difficult book to explain, so let's start with the basics. Fever Dream is a short book, it's a novella, and it is, well, a fever dream, both literally and also metaphorically. Here's what I mean. Fever Dream is about a woman who is in a clinic suffering from a fever, an illness, talking to a young boy, and she is trying to figure out how she got there and what exactly is happening to her. Fever Dream is classified as horror, 
and it actually won the Shirley Jackson Award for Best Novella back when it came out in 2017. But while I would certainly call it confusing, disorienting, tense, kind of like a fever dream, and these adjectives also describe a lot of horror books, I wasn't exactly frightened while I was reading it. Everything bad that was going to happen had already happened, and there was this sense of inevitability looming over the story that did make me curious about what was happening, but at the same time, I kind of already knew where the story was headed because that's where the narrative had to go in order to drive home the point that the author was trying to make. I will say that I had a lot of trouble understanding this book even after I had finished it because there's a lot of ambiguity about what's actually going on and because I also just didn't have the necessary context to understand the central issue that is at the heart of this book. And my word choice there is deliberate because I do think that there is a lot of heart in this book, a lot of emotional investment. There is empathy and anger and helplessness. And once I did some research, I completely understood why. Unfortunately, I can't explain without giving away basically the entire plot, but if you do decide to read Fever Dream and you're also kind of confused, then I would suggest reading the Wikipedia page afterward because I personally found it to be very helpful. Overall, Fever Dream is a book that I would not have chosen to read on my own, but I do think that it is a brilliant execution of the message and the awareness that the author is trying to spread, and I also think that this book was the perfect length. Fever Dream is not really about the characters, it's much more so about their social and economic circumstances and the issues arising from that, and I do think that this book conveys all of that perfectly. So, if this sounds interesting to you, then I would definitely recommend checking out the horror novella Fever Dream. Okay, moving on to prompt number two. Prompt number two was Columbia, and for this prompt, I read Fruit of the Drunken Tree by Ingrid Rojas Contreras. This is a coming-of-age story that takes place during the, um, escapades, let's say, of Pablo Escobar, and it centers around two girls, Chula and Petrona. Chula is part of a more affluent family. She lives in a gated community with her parents and her older sister, and for the most part, she is very much removed from the grim realities of guerrilla warfare and economic hardship. Petrona, on the other hand, works as a maid for Chula's family, and she and her family suffer from dire poverty. Their home is a shack that doesn't have doors or windows, and they seem to be living off of bread and soda, which, not really what you call a balanced meal. And yet, despite their differences, Petrona and Chula strike up a friendship that 
we already know is doomed because the book opens with Chula's family immigrating to Los Angeles. Fruit of the Drunken Tree is deeply sad, but it's also deeply moving. And as someone who is largely unfamiliar with Colombia's history, it was also deeply interesting. It was understated and devastating and captured Chula's mindset so well, which doesn't happen often when adults are writing young child characters. I loved this book, and I think that if you love conversations about socioeconomic differences, as well as coming-of-age stories set in war-torn countries, then Fruit of the Drunken Tree could absolutely be for you. The next three prompts are Cuba, Italy, and Nigeria, and the books that I read for these prompts are, respectively, Next Year in Havana by Chanel Clayton, My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante, and A Spell of Good Things by Ayobami Adebayo. As I've already mentioned, I'm going to be doing deep dives into these books over the course of the miniseries, so... I'm just going to move on for now. If you're interested in discussions about these books, just tune back in every week during this month and you will get those episodes. Prompt number six is Norway, and for this prompt, I read Autumn by Carl Ove Nalsgaard. This is part of a series of books that the author is writing called the My Struggle series, which certainly a choice. Not a choice I would make, but you do you, I guess. So, this is often described as a memoir in parts, but having read one of the books in this series, I wouldn't necessarily describe it as such. I wouldn't describe it as a memoir or even as part of a memoir. Autumn is a collection of essays that can get personal, but ultimately the essays aren't about the author's life so much as they're about the human condition, what it means to be human, and so on and so forth. Each essay is short and it's about a specific topic like the sun, or apples, or beekeeping, or the toilet, or whatever. And as he's talking about the topic, he eventually ends up reaching some kind of profound or insightful conclusion. Let me show you what I mean. Here is an excerpt from the essay called Frames, which is about frames, as in picture frames. These frames, without which neither we nor the world can be conceived, are found in all areas of existence. They apply not only to what is, but also to what ought to be, for the way we behave has definite limits too. Since life is in constant motion, from time to time, a divergence arises between what we ought to do and what we want to do, which manifests itself in an urge to go beyond the boundaries that have been set for us. If that urge is given outlet, there follows a period of boundlessness before life is fixed within new limits. In the life of an individual, this is called teenage rebellion, and in the life of the culture, it is called generational revolt, or revolution, or war. Common to all of these is the longing for authenticity, for the real, which is simply the place where one's notions about reality and reality itself 
are one and the same thing. Or in other words, a life, an existence, a world unframed. And as the book goes on, I would say that the essays become more philosophical. They become more about intangible, abstract concepts such as forgiveness or experience. I particularly enjoyed the essay about experience, and here's a quote from that essay. This is how experience works. It settles around the self like a sediment, and the self, as the possibilities open to increase in number, becomes more and more difficult to nail down. The wisest person knows that I is nothing in itself. There are also several letters in this book to his unborn daughter, which, very sweet. Here's a quote from one of the letters that I especially liked. The parents give the child life. The child gives the parents hope. That is the transaction. Does that sound like a burden? It isn't. Hope makes no demands. So overall, I found Autumn to be a very reflective, very interesting essay collection. It's not very long, but it is somewhat dense, so if you want to read this book, I would definitely recommend taking it slowly, maybe reading it over a week or two weeks, taking it a couple of essays at a time. Autumn definitely has an appropriate title. It's meditative and slow, and it's about that middle stage in life where you're no longer really thinking about your childhood or your young adulthood, and you're just kind of content with where you are and what you have. I enjoyed this essay collection, and I enjoyed experiencing how this author thinks about the world and how he processes his emotions and experiences, but I would not go into this book expecting a memoir. And that is Autumn by Carl Ove Nosgaard. Prompt number seven is Pakistan. So for this prompt, I read Exit West by Mohsin Hamid, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize back in 2017 and in general was critically acclaimed at the time. So I was very excited to read it. Exit West is the story of Nadia and Saeed, Two young people who fall in love even as their city, which is unnamed, erupts into chaos. They end up fleeing as refugees, first to Greece, then to London, and so on. My favorite part of this book was the exploration of their relationship. It was so beautiful and layered and just so mature, which really wasn't what I was expecting to find, but which I enjoyed so much, especially since the writing was both lyrical but also incisive and not at all overdone, which happens a lot. A lot of literary fiction ends up feeling overwritten, but the writing here was so clear and natural and almost unconsciously beautiful, which is my favorite kind of literary fiction writing. And of course, Exit West has a lot of conversations about refugees and global unrest and all kinds of other hot button topics. And it was definitely interesting to read the author's perspective on these issues. Like Fever Dream and Autumn, Exit West is a short book. So if any of this sounds interesting, then definitely pick it up. Prompt number eight is South Africa. So for this prompt, I read 
The Woman in the Blue Cloak by Dion Mayer. This is part of a long-running mystery series, and I had been hoping to read a full-length book from the series, but this novella ended up being the only book in the series available at my library, so. I honestly don't have that much to say about this book. It's just a simple little mystery about a tourist who goes to South Africa and ends up missing and then turns up murdered. But of course, it turns out that the woman wasn't just a tourist, she had a very specific reason for visiting, which ended up being fatal. I will say that because I picked up a book in the middle of the series, there was a lot that had already happened to the main characters, and there was a lot of assumed knowledge that I just didn't have. Overall, it was interesting to get a glimpse into modern day life in South Africa, which was what I was looking for, but because this is such a short book, there really aren't that many suspects or possible solutions, so it's not the most interesting mystery, but if you're looking for a compact little mystery set in South Africa, then I did enjoy The Woman in the Blue Cloak. cloak. <laughs> the Woman in the Blue Cloak for what it was. And yes, I am aware that I ended up reading a whole bunch of short books for this challenge, which was actually a really nice change of pace. I do feel like I want to pick up more short books slash novellas in the future. Prompt number nine is Syria. So for this prompt, I read The Wrong End of the Telescope by Robbie Alamedine. Like Exit West, this is a refugee story, but with a bit of a different perspective. So unlike Exit West, the wrong end of the telescope is told from the perspective, not of a refugee, but of a Lebanese-American doctor named Mina, who, at the request of her friend Emma, is spending a week on the Greek island of Lesbos and they are assisting Syrian refugees. What's so interesting about this book is that it is told via chapters with these very evocative names. And so what you end up with is the story of Mina helping the refugees, but this central story is interleaved with what feel like personal essays, which delve into Mina's thoughts and feelings and backstory. And overall, you get a book that is very serious, very dark, but it's also not overwhelming. There are funny moments and introspective moments and reflective moments that really made me think. This was a book that engaged both my brain and my heart, and the author balanced these two sides of the story in such a masterful way that I really enjoyed reading this book, much more than I thought I would, especially after the heavier books I had read for this challenge. One of the most interesting parts of this book, The Wrong End of the Telescope, is that the author includes a character who he admits in the interview included at the end of the book is a stand-in for himself. Here is that quote from the interview. I don't know if you're going to ask the question that everybody seems to ask. Why did you include a writer who's just like you? Well, because in many ways, that's what happened to me. I was interested in that, in the clash of what happens to those who have a foot in different places. Mina would not experience that kind of clash. She would see it, but she would not necessarily be involved. Whereas, I am not admitting I fell apart, but laughs. Even if I don't admit that I fell apart in Lesbos, 
After working for five years with refugees in Lebanon and Istanbul, Lesbos was such an experience, and writing about Lesbos was traumatic. Until Mina comes in and I could see what was happening and write about it, not being too far from it, but not being too close. The Goldilocks distance. I actually really enjoyed this interview. I'm really glad that they included it at the end of the book. It was really interesting to read the author's thoughts about how he used this book to process his experiences and his conflicting feelings towards his own personal identity. As he says, all these things that I was feeling about the novel and about who I am, am I a Westerner? Am I an Easterner? Am I Lebanese? Am I American? She, Mina, was able to go through all that without having a nervous breakdown. I'm not silly enough to think that she wrote the novel, but by imagining her, I was able to imagine the right kind of distance from the novel. And whenever Mina addresses the author character, whenever she works through their complicated relationship, how they're similar and how they're different, then we get some of my favorite parts of the book. Here's an example and probably my favorite excerpt from the book. Did you believe that writing about the experience would help you understand what happened? You still cling to romantic notions about writing, that you'll be able to figure things out, that you will understand life, as if life is understandable, as if art is understandable. When has writing explained anything to you? Writing does not force coherence onto a discordant narrative. You knew that, you told me that, but still you thought this novel would be magically imbued with your dreams of respite, even though none of the previous novels you wrote helped you in any way. This one, you thought, would heal your pain. Like a faithful analysand, you believed if you worked hard, wrote long enough, you'd come across the clue that would unravel the puzzle the one key that would unlock your mystery. Keys, if they ever exist, darling, are not found in literature. Why did you keep at it for so long? Did you believe that if you wrote about Syrian refugees, the world would look at them differently? Did you hope that readers would empathize, inhabit a refugee's skin for a few hours? As if that were some kind of panacea. You still hoped, even though it had never happened. At best, you would have written a novel that was an emotional palliative for some couple in suburbia. For a few moments, they'd think how terrible it was for these refugees. They'd get outraged on social media for ten minutes. But then they'd pour another glass of Chardonnay. Empathy is overrated. Overall, The Wrong End of the Telescope ended up being one of my favorite books that I read for this challenge because it has so many elements that I enjoy. Interesting themes, interesting narrative structure, complex characters, strong, memorable writing. So, if all of that sounds interesting to you, this is definitely one of the books I would most strongly recommend, even though, of course, it is a difficult book to read and deals with a lot of very triggering subject material. So definitely, if you have any interest in reading it at all, then look up the content warnings and all of that. All right, the final prompt, prompt number 10, is Trinidad and Tobago. And for this prompt, I read the classic, a House for Mr. Beeswas by V.S. Naipaul. This is a book that I've wanted to read for a while, so I was really happy to have an excuse to do that. 
I always love a good classic. A House for Mr. Beeswas is what I would describe as a comedic epic. It follows the life of a hapless character who is always ending up in unfortunate situations, who never really gets what he wants, and like so many comedic protagonists, he's kind of pathetic and unlikable, which makes him easy to laugh at. But at the same time, there are moments where you do feel genuinely sorry for him because he deals with anxiety and depression, and especially towards the end of the book, he begins to deal more and more with this vague existential dread. So this book follows the life of Mr. Beeswas from birth to death, and as we follow his adventures, the author weaves this complex and colorful picture of Trinidad and Tobago's society as it was in the first half of the 20th century. Obviously, there are many elements of this society and the way it treats certain groups of people that can feel very uncomfortable for modern day readers, but there are also moments of social commentary that I thought were really well done. For example, although Mr. Beeswas himself is quite misogynistic, I thought that the author had several moments of very incisive commentary on the patriarchy and its effect on women. For example, there is this quote, and Shama, by the way, is Mr. Beeswas's wife, who he is absolutely horrible to. Anyway, here's the quote. For there was no doubt that this was what Shama expected from life. To be taken through every stage, to fulfill every function, to have her share of the established emotions, joy at a birth or marriage, distress during illness and hardship, grief at a death. Life, to be full, had to be this established pattern of sensation. Grief and joy, both equally awaited, were one. For Shama and her sisters and women like them, ambition, if the word could be used, was a series of negatives, not to be unmarried, not to be childless, not to be an undutiful daughter, sister, wife, mother, widow. And then there is this other quote which needs a bit of context. So Shama's brother Shekhar wanted to go to Cambridge but was ultimately unable to. At this point in the story, that was many years ago, and Shama and her sisters have been reminiscing about it. She, Shama, clearly felt that an injustice had been done and he knew the Tulsis too well to be surprised that the sisters, who never questioned their own neglected education, cat-and-bag marriage and precarious position, should yet feel concerned that Shekhar, whose marriage was happy and whose business was flourishing, had not had all that he might. This was such an incisive moment that I had to really pause to let it sink in, and even though I enjoyed the humor, it was really those illuminating, insightful moments that made this book, A House for Mr. Beeswas, such a rewarding reading experience. And that insight extends to the characters as well. There is this moment between Mr. Beeswas and his son, for example, that really captures their complex relationship. Father and son each saw the other as weak and vulnerable, and each felt a responsibility for the other, a responsibility which in times of particular pain was disguised by exaggerated authority on the one side, exaggerated respect on the other. That quote
quote really encapsulates not only the relationship itself, but also the effect that that relationship has on the way that they behave towards each other. I also really enjoyed the writing, especially towards the end of the book. There were moments where the writing was just so beautiful that I wanted to slow down and savor it. I mean, I didn't because this book is by far the longest that I read for this challenge, and it's also a classic, so it's a bit dense, but I, I definitely wanted to. Here's an example of writing that I really savored. The house faced east, and the memories that remained of these first four years in Port of Spain were above all memories of mourning. The newspaper, delivered free, still warm, the ink still wet, sprawled on the concrete steps down which the sun was moving. Dew lay on trees and roofs. The empty street, freshly swept and washed, was in cool shadow, and water ran clear in the gutters, whose green bases had been scratched and striped by the sweeper's harsh brooms. Memories of taking the royal infield out from under the house and cycling in a sun still cool along the streets of the awakening city. Stillness at noon, stripping for a short nap, the window of his room open, a square of blue above the unmoving curtain. In the afternoon, the steps in shadow, tea in the back veranda, then an interview at a hotel perhaps, and the urgent machinery of the sentinel, the promise of the evening, the expectation of the morning. This is a moment of such peace and tranquility and coziness that I just, I wanted to steep in it. Oh, and how can I forget this painfully relatable quote? Uh, the context here is that Mr. Beeswas is working at a newspaper and he has just been given certain instructions on how he is supposed to write his articles. These features were not easy to write. In the days of Mr. Burnett, once he had got a slant in an opening sentence, everything followed. Sentence generated sentence. Paragraph led to paragraph, and his articles had a flow and a unity. Now, writing words he did not feel, he was cramped, and the time came when he was not sure what he did feel. He had to note down ideas and juggle them into place. He wrote and rewrote, working extremely slowly, nagged by continual headaches, completing his articles only to meet the Thursday deadline. The results were labored, dead, incapable of giving pleasure except to the people written about. Real talk. Who has not written like an essay or something that you're forced to write that hasn't felt like this, you know, where you're like, I just have to get it done. I just have to finish it. I know it's not any good, but, you know, like there, there's nothing I can really do about that. You know what I mean? Such a such a relatable moment. Overall, A House for Mr. Beeswas was in many ways the kind of classic that I really enjoy. But I feel like I should emphasize again that like a lot of classics, this is not going to be for everyone. And if you want to read this book, I would definitely recommend looking more into the potentially hurtful or offensive topics that you could encounter in this book before picking it up. All right, let's wrap this up. Those are my thoughts on most of the books that I read for the Storygraph 
Reads the World Challenge. And as I've mentioned several times over the course of this month, I will be doing deeper discussions into the other three books that I didn't cover today. Hopefully I have inspired you to also participate in this challenge, to read more internationally, and if you are inspired, then the challenge link is in the description. And I would really recommend, well, not any, but I would recommend many of the books that I talked about today as a starting point for reading more internationally. All right, that's going to be everything for this episode. This has been the 2AM Book Review Club. Thanks so much for joining me, and I will be back next week at 2AM. Until then, have a great week, and happy book travels. Thank <laughs> you.